That's what it's stand up and again, Eric. I'm just telling you. <laughs> it's gonna be a really, it's gonna be a really awkward cut, and then after that, we're all kind of like eyes wide open, uncomfortable. But welcome to this episode of Dabot History. Uh, I'm Jake. We got Jeff, Eric, and Cameron. We got the whole crew tonight. Uh, we already know how we're doing, so I'm just gonna get into this. Uh, let's start at the top. Old news. So we got. Some selections of stories that I'd like to go over that are history-related. First one is Jack the Ripper. Do we finally have his identity? Well, according to Yahoo News, which you know is a reliable source, we do. Uh, Apparently, a woman named Sarah Bax Horton, whose great-great-grandfather was a policeman during the Jack the Ripper investigation, under some compelling evidence that matches witness descriptions of that of a man seen with the female victim shortly before they were stabbed to death in 1888 in Whitebridge, East London. Her detective work led her to Chaim Himes, which is an awesome name, who lived in the area in the center of the murders. He was also a cigar maker, and he knew how to use a knife. That's that's what we know about Chaim. That's the evidence right there. <laughs> yeah. he, he loves cigars, and he knew how to use a knife, which probably could describe 70% of men living in London in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. But uh, apparently Jack the Ripper was identified as Chaim, um, because of distinct physical characteristics, they both had a stiff arm and irregular gait with bent knees, which, again, I'm not sure is really odd in 19th century London. But Yeah, his knees bent? Say. Is that what I just heard? Yeah, he had a weird <laughs> a weird walk, and he had a stiff he had arm. When he walked, his knees would bend. It was very odd. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was odd. It was, it was almost... It was, it was really weird. So they actually threw him in like a sanitarium because he had a lot of seizures. And uh, they that's said, when the murders stopped. And here's what, <laughs> that's what they say. The murders stopped right after that. So they, this murder stopped at the end of 1888. Around the times, Williams was picked up by the police as a wandering lunatic. In 1889, he was incarcerated at the Lunatic Asylum yeah. in North London until his death. The murderer, Jack the Ripper, never struck again after he was arrested. So clearly, what is that was paused for arrest today? Just a wandering lunatic. We're picking up on a wandering lunatic charge. Yeah, that you you would get the jails would be so full. That's what would happen Mm -hmm. is the jails would just be fuller than they are. But if that was San Francisco could turn all of their empty (laughs) office space into prisons. In the lunatic in 1888, asylums? that's enough to hold up in court, though. It was like, ah, uh, you know, let's let's get an eye, oh, yeah. eyes on him. Yeah, he looks guilty. What's let's the evidence? Put him away. Judge, look at the guy. Look at his arm. Like, his arm doesn't his move. His arm. Look at his bend. Yeah. Look at his bendy knees. You're on <laughs> Look at his bendy knees. This brings up another question. So, so he had these <laughs> bendy had knees. Eric, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Just like Jack the Ripper, but. Uh, we assume he had a mental disorder that he caused said, him well, to be like a serial killer. So he, was, he had epilepsy, and so clearly that means he was a serial killer lunatic. Right. Well, not, not are there not like serial murderers? At, at what point does society like get serial murderers? There weren't like serial killers in the Middle Ages. Well, they just they went off to where and killed people. Well, like they just, no, they, they just didn't have the name serial killer. But what did they call him back then? Yeah, he was. Well, like, I don't know. They called him a. Was he was a cheeky like fellow. Guy. Just yeah. a violent guy. I. I don't know. I, I feel like the the psycho killer thing is. They, well, they called something him, that that the is. Ladies, they called him king. That's right. That right. So yeah. that's something that our society gets to have because we're civilized. A few people yeah. snap and just. Can you name a guy Chaim Hyams? I think that's setting him up for failure. What True. does that even mean? Nobody knows. It's the most Jewish name I've ever heard. Yeah. Uh, it's Anglo Saxon. Is it? Is that Jaime Hyman? Yeah. Oh, sorry. It can also be an Ashkenazic name derived from the Hebrew word Chaim, meaning life. So Chaim is from Old English Hegem. Which is an enclosed dwelling. So, way to make it historical, guys. Good job. 
We did it. We somehow brought it back. Pain is also an American rock band. They look weird, so I'm not going to. So here's what I want to know. Sarah Bax Horton, how can she monetize this situation here? Oh, you know she's going to sell a book because her great-great-grandpa was a cop during this time. So she's got... She's got, or she's got a, a true crime podcast that's about to come out. There I mean, it is. I, I have bullshitted through my share of papers in my day, but yeah. getting a full length book off of this little story, I pass off to her. If there's already been books that, written about him. Yeah. But yeah, this, but I mean, we, we've yeah, got but she's got the one where she files. solves it, right? Exactly. Yeah. She's yeah. got it. I mean, I mean, this is like being the one. This is like the first true crime case. <laughs> you, only, you only have to be right once. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's Yahoo News, Eric. It doesn't get more reputable than this. She has arrived. True. So. She'll, she'll be it's fine. like the weatherman. He says 60% chance of rain. He's always yeah. right. It's such a bunch what of horseshit. Jeff? What's up, bud? He's just right. holding still. <laughs> oh, Jeff. Uh, Texas. I almost Internet. lost you there, Jeff. I lost Cameron. Can you guys see Cameron? We can I'm see here. Cameron. Yeah. Jeff's stream just arbitrarily cuts one of us out. That's worried. <laughs> it's okay. It's still recording him. Okay. So I'm going to skip a couple of these because they're not as fun as that one. Uh, but one of them, the complaint tablet. Yes, oh, I love this. The archaeolo- This is from archaeologist.org, but there's other resources. This isn't exactly new old news. Um, this is old, old news. Uh, the complaint tablet of E. Nasir is a clay tablet from the ancient city of Ur written around 1700 BCE. It is a complaint to a merchant named Nasir. This is like a Yelp review written from a customer named Nani. It's written in Akkadian cuneiform and is known to be, and I think Guinness Book of World Records has this as the world's oldest written complaint. So the story is E. Nasir traveled to Dilmun to buy copper and returned to sell it in Mesopotamia. On one occasion, he agreed to sell the copper ingots to Nani. Nani then sent his servant with the money to complete the transaction. The copper was considered by Nani to be substandard and not accepted. In response, Nani created the cuneiform letter for delivery to El Nasir, inscribed, I wonder if they had a better business bureau back then, inscribed on it is a complaint to E. Nasir about the copper delivery of the incorrect grade and issues with other delivery. Nani also complained that his servant had been treated rudely and stated this. And here's so here's the actual text of the tablet. Tell E. Nasir, Nani sends the following message. When you came, you said to me, I will give fine quality copper ingots. You left, but you did not do what you promised me. You put ingots which were not good for my messenger and said, if you want to take them, take them. If you do not want to take them, go away. What do you take me for that you treat me with such contempt? How have you treated me for that copper? You have withheld my money from bag, my money bag from me in enemy territory. It is now up to you to restore to me in full. Take notice that I will not accept any copper from you that is not of fine quality. I shall select and take the ingots individually in my yard, and I shall exercise against you the right of rejection. You have treated me with contempt. There you go. The world oldest Yelp review complaint. I, I have a question. He wrote yep. all this on a stone tablet. Yeah, he probably had a servant. No, he was. He that that was super pissed. You know how long that took to write that on a stone tablet. So if it's like like I'm not even typing on my phone anymore. If I can't do voice to text, I'm out. And this guy carved it in stone. This is Yelp. This is holding up a sign in front of the business for three days after. Yeah, that's a that's a legit boycott. I'm. So first of all, it's cuneiform, so it's in like a soft clay tablet, and they use it looks like a pencil to make these triangular markings. So it probably didn't take that long to write. Except uh, even Sierra Nani did not write this; they they wrote to Tefsid to to a scribe who wrote it for them and then baked it. Here's the thing that throws me off, though: we have this stone tablet, which means um, Lena Sierra. Not this tablet, 
And just like you would get some complaint notice, you'd crumple it up and throw it away. He had this tablet, and he's like, okay, uh, I just have to set this here, and it'll last 4,000 years. Yeah. Like, he can't even get rid of it. He could have broken it, but where do you store a complaint like that? Up that guy's ass. That's what you do with that thing. You, you beat him over the head with that you thing. Tell him. Yeah. Hey, 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 come here. You must spill something. <laughs> oh, just goodness. I, I need a resolution here. I mean, whatever became of that complaint? Did he? We don't know. We don't have the official response. He, yeah. You know, it's funny is, is that there are like tens of thousands of these cuneiform tablets that we just have like stored in museums all around the world, but we've never translated them just because there's not enough people that know, you know, Akkadian to translate this stuff. But now one of the things that they're doing with AI is these archeologists can just scan the tablet and translate it. So I'm sure hmm. there's gonna be thousands more of these nonsensical, like we always assume that old text and old tablets or stuff are like, like important in wisdom, like it's all Confucius. I'm guessing 90% of it is fart jokes and written complaints like complaints. this. Yeah. But it's yeah. basically like the text thread between the four of us. That's what all these tablets yeah. are. Essentially. <laughs> so we, we haven't gotten we can only gotten worse. We're the same as Enasir and Nani. We're the exact same. Yeah. Can uh, Sorry, Eric, what saying topic, there? but can AI really do that? Can AI yes. read Oh yeah. Well, I don't know if it's true. I don't know if it's true AI, but they can program it to learn Akkadian and Cuneiform. The thing is, it, it and then it, it just takes it and it translates so many it days yeah. for weeks to work through a single tablet. There's just not enough translators who know this. So huh. by plugging it into AI with what they know, they can pull out the common stuff and fill in the blanks, and it just it speeds up the process. So, wow. it, it so used to like take a human being a PhD like ten years to decode a protein, and AI decoded all of the proteins in a matter of days. Yeah, wow, which is both awesome and terrifying. But no, it's it's I'll go with it's terrifying. at the heart of this whole Hollywood strike. The actors yeah. and the writers. This is all about AI. I've come to find out. It's weird hmm. that the really? first. It's weird that yeah, yeah. because. Hollywood, the studios are trying to say, well, we want to be able to just have AI write scripts or we want to be able to take background actors, images and likenesses and use them forever. And then they can just insert them into backgrounds of movies without actually ever having to pay for the mm -hmm. actors. And so it's weird that the first blows in this, you know, AI future are coming out of Hollywood. But it's it's a tangible yeah. thing. Like these writers and actors, you know, they're not all Tom Cruise and Tom Hanks. You know, they're getting by from day to day. And yeah. the same thing with the writers. Like it's so they're to them. It's it's very real already. The effects of AI and the studios don't want to pay them. And, you know, so Eric, I know you've used AI in your work. Uh, Cameron and Jake, have you guys had an opportunity to use it, Chat GPT, at all in your work? I, I have I've used not, it, but I've not for work. I've played with it, you know, just for fun, but I haven't done it for anything I need to for my job. I've got an interesting story about that. So I, I kind of duplicated our conversation on the text strand from a couple weeks ago, and I was sitting down and drinking beers with buddies um, from high school not long ago, and one of my buddies is an attorney. And he absolutely loves chat G GPT because, you know, if he has to amend a document or, or find mm -hmm. some right language, he says, chat GPT, give me a passage that talks about this and this and this. I need a clause for a contract. And it's not perfect and it's not exact, but it's a good starting point for him to tweak the language as opposed to coming up with something, you know, out of the blue and he said it just absolutely saves him so much time in his everyday job so he loves it i've had a couple instances where it's been I, i've asked it to write lesson plans for me wow. i know the kind that you you write we wrote in college and then never wrote again 
Yeah. You know, all your objectives and all that stuff. And so it's kind of cool. It, it can lay out a pretty good lesson plan for you. I've had it write essays that I've assigned. So I say, here is uh, here's my prompt. Write this essay, five paragraphs. And I'm, my goal is to use that as a guide for students. But we had a student this year. <clears throat> my buddy teaches Spanish at our school. And he, he had the students write essays in Spanish, like a paragraph, write it in Spanish, tell me your story. And this, another student tipped him off, said, hey, uh, this kid used chat GPT. So the kid handed in the essay. My buddy took a look at it. He said, uh, you use chat GPT to write this? He's like, oh, yeah. yeah. So like, you know how I know? Well, how would you know? Because this is in English. And uh, <laughs> you want to see it? It's not even that hard. You know, it's funny. <laughs> stuff like that didn't even like, read it. He didn't read it to, to see. No more this in Spanish. Anything. No more written anything. Wow. You're just going to have to speak Spanish to me. You're going to have to have a conversation in Spanish. That's, a, that's how you that's pass a your hell test. of a punchline right there as a teacher. This is in English. <laughs> that's awesome. All right. Well, I got one more short old news story. And uh, <laughs> it's the U.S. defector. So this past week, U.S. Army Private Travis King defected to North Korea during a border tour on Tuesday. So they were in the DMZ, like the Village of Freedom or whatever it is. And the U.S. Army told the Daily Beast that service member willfully slipped away from the tour and crossed into North Korea. It is the first U.S. defection to the communist regime since the 1960s. Conversely, tens of thousands of North Koreans have defected to South Korea. Um, Wait, does Dennis Rodman count? Dennis Rodman? (laughs) Dennis Rodman is a citizen of the world, so he can come and go as he pleases. (laughs) But... Um, according to North Korean news, a witness on the same tour saw a male member of her group run across the border as they visited uh, the JSA. It says, you are right, we hear a loud, ha, ha, ha. And one guy from our group that was with us all day runs between the two buildings and over to the other side. The reason he defected? Because he had been set to fly back to the United States after being detained in South Korea on assault charges for roughly two months. So in his mind... He felt that running to North Korea was a better option than coming back to the United States and possibly being um, dishonorably discharged and uh, put in jail for a couple of years. He's probably looking for that communist utopia. Yeah. (laughs) He's the first guy in years to to go over the other side. Let us know how that works out. This sounds like one of Eric's eighth graders. It's just... So desperate to get out of, stay out of trouble. And, and the fact that he he's laughing, he goes, ha, 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 as he's running across the border. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. Yeah. Like, I know America's got problems, but I'm not fleeing to North Korea for anything. Like, there's no, there's no way. There's, there's even other dictatorships that you can go to that are better options than North Korea. But I mean, maybe he was a late nineties Bulls fan and wanted to take his chances with Kim Jong un. Yeah. Just saying. maybe. <laughs> just he's like Rodman just kept talking it up and Yeah, hope we lost Jeff again. See if he comes back. He's back. Oh he's back. wait for it. <laughs> Whose fan is that in the background? Well, I have a fan. I'm going to turn it off. No, I mean, I want you to be comfortable. That's my primary concern. Thanks, man. I love it about you. All right. So let's get into our main topic tonight, the oil industry. Everyone's favorite topic. Um, Over summer break, um, we went and visited my wife and her family in Pennsylvania and she lives in Western Pennsylvania in Crawford County and about 45 minutes to an hour away from her house is this town called Titusville. And just outside of Titusville is Drake's well. And it is the first commercially viable, viable oil well 
in the United States, if not the world. There's other contenders for that title, but who cares? They're not Americans. Um, so in 1858, Colonel Edwin Drake wasn't a real colonel. He just, somebody just gave him that name to make him sound more important. Um, was hired by the Seneca Oil Company to find a commercially viable oil well in Titusville, Pennsylvania. He was paid $1,000 a year to find oil. He was a retired railroad engineer. And what he did was apparently for centuries, there was these thing called oil seeps, where oil just seep out of the ground. And Native Americans would like build little pits and like put logs in, in so it would seep into these kind of pools. And then they would use it for various things, um, you know, like certain elixirs and medicines and stuff like that. And then the Europeans, obviously, when they came over, they saw this oil as well and started using it for those sorts of things as well. Um, but it was really, it came out of the ground slowly. And so it wasn't commercially viable because it just slowly seep out of the ground. You couldn't get much from it. So Seneca Oil Company paid this guy, Edwin Drake, to find a way to get the oil out quickly. So he goes there in 1858 um, and he initially tries to dig it out basically by hand, just dig a big well, but the groundwater kept collapsing it and it almost killed his crew. And so then what he changed his tactics to is he'd use a drive pipe and basically just hammer the pipe down into the ground until it hit bedrock. And then from there, they would drill. And he hired this guy named William Smith, who's called Uncle Billy. And Uncle Billy was a blacksmith and he was a salt well um, driller. And so they would, he would be able to like change the bits and fix the machinery. And they used a small like steam engine, only like 600 or six horsepower. And over months and months and months, they were able to drill down to 69 and a half feet. And on August 27th, 1859, so the day before one of our members' birthdays, um, they got to 69 feet, they went to bed, they woke up the next morning, and the, the well had filled with crude oil at 69 and a half feet deep. And then from there, the oil industry took off. And so um, they were able to start drilling. It got like 12 to 20 barrels of oil a day. Other wells in Pennsylvania started dug. Titusville became a boom town. Um, the Teamsters would log, you know, barrels by the wagon to these barges, float them down the river to refineries, and then to all these markets across the country and the world. And from there, the oil industry took off. And it was just kind of wild to walk in this place where this huge momentous event happened. And it's such a, I mean, they've, they rebuilt the derrick where the original well is, and they have a a board for board refabrication of, of the original well and the original drill and all that is super cool. But it's like, it's not anything special other than the fact that it totally changed the world. And it's just something that I just found so fascinating. I wanted to talk about because everything in our life today is entirely dependent upon that well first being dug and people realizing, no, you can do this. You can draw oil out of the ground. And it well, and, and without that, I mean, where are we today with cars? I mean, that was before automobiles became ubiquitous. I mean, at, at some point, I, yeah, they developed gasoline after all this. I mean, this really, you're right. This is a, a big domino. Yeah. And then, you know, from there, he had all these oil barons and like Rockefeller. And at one point he owned 90% of the refineries in the country. And then um, the Sherman Antitrust Act was passed in 1890. And then 1911, I think the Supreme Court finally forced him to break it up, Standard Oil, into all these other oil companies like Exxon Mobil, um, Chevron, B BP. Well, BP was British Petroleum, but um, all these smaller oil companies and all the majors that we have today, super majors we have today in America are from this and oil, you know, Pennsylvania was the oil capital of the world for a long time. And now it's, you know, at least in America, now it's like Texas and Oklahoma and California, but it was pretty, it's just, it was just really surreal to be walking in a place that changed the entire world. And it was only 170 years ago. So I don't know. I just wanted to talk about it because I know Jeff, you didn't, you work for the oil industry when you were younger younger guy. Yeah. Texas. I was a landman before I got into a wireless and landman. Even if you're a female, yeah. you're still called the landman. And 
you go out and you research mineral ownership and all the public records and uh yeah it's crazy detailed work but yeah here in texas it's uh it, it's not so much anymore, but up until about 20 years ago, it was, I mean, the fortunes of maybe not all of Texas, but definitely East Texas rose and fell with the price of uh, oil and natural gas very much so. Yeah, I know I watched the uh, America, the story of us series on the History Channel, and they talked about one of the first wells. I think it was in Texas or Oklahoma one of the first major wells and that's where they used uh the combination of of water and the sand they made that mud to kind of lubricate the entire drill process and shore up the hole and uh after they struck oil the price of oil it, it was less than water it was cheaper than water mm. at one point well again yeah, i so think, that, I think this was flowing I think this is before America fell in love with automobiles. I mean, there really weren't a lot of uses for oil well, back then. It, it it was part of, I mean, I mean it, it kind of fueled that, right? Yeah. Like so if you, can, that if was you all, have a cheap fuel source. Was, was coal. That was, that was the oil of the 1800s until oil. Yeah. If you have a cheap fuel source and you can lower the cost of the vehicles, which Henry Ford is going to help make happen. Uh, you have something that could take off. Well, yeah. and I forget what they were originally producing, but they weren't using the oil to make gasoline. Um, it was something else, and gasoline so, was it. Well, kerosene was one of the things that they were producing. That's right. Back it was then. kerosene, and gasoline was an unintended, an unwanted byproduct from the kerosene refining process. No yep. way. Hmm. And so that's that's and initially that's like well we can use it for kerosene, but now like. Uh, tannins, <clears throat> basically Vaseline is that's an oil byproduct. Petroleum jelly, right? Like this computer, everything we use today, with few exceptions in the modern world, is some sort of oil product. Like even if we went fully electric in our cars and grid, we still need massive amounts of oil every day to function as a society. Like it just it changed everything because without oil, like coal would be what we had. And coal is inefficient and it's dirty and you can't do nearly what you can do with oil as far as a, a just a product. It, it, you can't derive coal into computer screens and, you know, iPhones, like stuff. Like that. So, so I've got a question and maybe it's a dumb one. So educate me. But, you know, how who makes the money there? Is Did it you the guys lose Cameron or is it just me or? It's just you. Just you. So is it the people that own the land and then my they porch experiment is going to... poorly? <laughs> um, <laughs> well, to your question, Cameron, you, America is kind of unique. While Jeff gets yeah. um, the tech stuff figured out, but America so is unique in that we have individual property rights. So my my mother in law, my wife's mom, yeah. and, and her brother the, her my wife's uncle um and all their neighbors in, in western pennsylvania they have oil wells on their property and they get yeah. royalties from that today it doesn't produce much oil anymore um because they're very old wells and there's not a lot of pressure but every now and then when the price of oil is high enough you'll hear the derricks bing bing off in the woods and this is in the middle of farmland in amish country pennsylvania and so she'll receive royalties from that oil because she has the mineral rights. Um, and then but from there, kind of easement that exists between the property owner and the person who installed the oil derrick and extracts the oil out. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so just like okay. we do in our industry with wireless, you know, stuff, um, that's what she does with her mineral rights. And so she sells, cool. I don't know who, I don't know who she gets the royalties from, but she sells the oil and she gets a check every. She every gets the royalties from the operator. So whoever drive. operates that but, well, which to me seems like a really good deal. If you get whoever a, operates a that well revenue generates revenue, they sell a hundred barrels of oil at $70 a barrel. And the uh, landowner usually gets a, a one sixth interest in that. That's a pretty standard amount. One sixth, one eighth, somewhere around oh. there. It's like yeah. a big number to me. And they're everywhere in Western Pennsylvania. Like when we drive 
to my wife's house. These oil wells are just all over the countryside and they're old and they don't produce much oil anymore, but they're still there and they produce a little bit. How are the wells uh, powered? I mean, are they powered electric or how do they actually extract the oil out? Jeff, do you know how they're powered? I would assume just by they're connected to the grid, but I don't know. Uh, you, you mean like the pump jacks? The ones out here. Are... Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, they're, they're yeah, definitely, the they're, they're run by electricity. So yeah, they, they go up and down and um, some of those old wells produce one, two barrels a day. Uh, sometimes they'll produce from everything they do produce. It can be up to 90% salt water. And then the, whoever operates that well has to pay to dispose of all the salt water and, Hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, when a well first comes in, they can be a gusher making hundreds of barrels a day, but 50 years later, it's much I think the ones, the ones out here in Bakersfield, because we got a lot of pump jacks, um, you'll hear them at night and it sounds like just a diesel truck going back and forth. And for like a month, I wondered why is there a truck driving back and forth at 10 PM? It's a pump jack. And I think they are just, they've got a, a diesel generator on them. I think that's what it sounds like, but yeah. Why wouldn't they just plug so, them into electricity? I have because no idea. Electricity I is is pretty easy to get in Bakersfield. I'm guessing. I I don't know. I honestly don't know. It just sounded like diesel, but that could just be all the stuff moving. It might be electric. I have no idea. I'm not that smart about this. So but, I'm I'm going into wireless mode now about <clears throat> all the you know, the entitlement process to get that to happen. I mean, are there certain zoning laws that have to be adhered to in order to, can you drill a, an oil well in somebody's backyard? So in Texas, from what I've heard, and well, maybe Jeff will come back and he can add more, but in Texas, from what I've heard, it's it's one of the easiest places in the world to get a permit to drill. So um, like you can, get a permit really easy on property on private property to drill in Texas. Um, I'm, I'm obviously, I'm sure you can't like put an oil well in your backyard, but like, um, but you know, in, in general, if you have the land and you know that there's oil down there and a company wants it, they can pay you and it's pretty easy to, to get it all set up. It's, it's all regulated in Texas, oddly enough by the railroad commission. So makes sense. Interesting. Okay. But, and then government land is like federal land is where it takes a lot longer, which. Uh, it just depends but, on, you know what? It depends yeah. on who owns the land. If it's, yeah, if it's BLM or federal land, then, you know, you've got to get a lease from the feds, which, you know, when a Republican's in office is a lot easier than when a Democrat's in office. But, you know, a lot of the minerals in yeah. the state are owned by the, uh, by the university system. A lot of inter- or minerals are owned by University of Texas at Austin, uh, Texas A&M. The, uh, you know, these landowners, they die and they'll uh, leave their mineral rights to the schools. So they have these huge uh, mineral estates that they own. And, like, and then they'll uh, charge tuition like 40 grand a year. Yeah, they, well, still, that, they that, still don't have that, enough that, money. That, that, that $70 billion dollar endowment doesn't build itself. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> got to build a new stadium. Um and another interesting thing about this with, with, you know, mineral rights and oil rights is like, so Chaco Canyon, which is in New Mexico, and it's this Native American, um, DNA, Navajo, and a lot of tribes ancestrally tie into Chaco Canyon. It's this very important, sacred, um, it's kind of like a city. And, um, but the land surrounding it, Deb Holland, the interior secretary, who is the first Native American interior secretary, um, reserved like a 10 mile buffer around that saying you can't have any more mineral rights permits in this 10 mile buffer, which some of the tribes applauded, but the Navajo in particular said, well, we have, it's on Navajo land and make money off this. Well, yeah. And the Navajo people live there and they have lease rights and they want to be able to draw the revenue. So it's kind of an interesting tension between trying to preserve you know historic and sacred sites with huh. the actual people from those sacred sites wanting to get the revenue from allowing mineral extraction on their on their land 
So, so it like, sounds like minimal mineral rights are separate from land rights in some cases. So well, you can in America, in Texas, without owning the land necessarily. Okay, so it depends. If uh, if your law is based on Spanish law, which it is in Texas, New Mexico, California, you can sever the mineral estate from the surface. So you can own all the surface land. Like I own 160 acres in Gladewater. I own none of the minerals. But if your state law is um, originated in Napoleonic law, uh, like Louisiana, and most, most of the middle of the country, um, in Louisiana, you can sever the mineral rights, but if they aren't produced for, I think it's, it's either seven to 10 years, if they're not produced for a certain amount of time, then they revert back to whoever owns the surface. So interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't know that about Napoleonic law. That is interesting because like, you know, America is kind of a unique country in that private property owners in general also own the land, the mineral un, mineral rights under the surface land. Like if you go to Saudi Arabia, another huge oil country, it's all, it's all owned by the state or the crown in Saudi Arabia. It, there is no private mineral rights at all. So a lot of these other producing oil producing nations, the average guy and, and homeowner or landowner, they don't get any benefit whether or not there's oil under their land at all. But in America, because we do allow a lot more mineral rights, the average homeowner or you know, landowner can derive financial benefit from those mineral rights. Um, it's it's almost every other country in the world that the minerals are owned by the, uh, by the government. So how yeah. many, so you have Spanish law for some states, Napoleonic law, and what, what else, like British common law for the rest of them? I would guess so. Uh, yeah, probably in New England. That makes sense. Yeah. Wild. But yeah, it's just a, it's, like I said, it was a fascinating, it was fascinating to walk into a place where it was like, it didn't look like much, but the whole world changed in 1859 because of this guy. Mm. And he was running out of money. Like he had to take out a loan to keep the operation going. Uh, and so he had to spend five, he took out a $500 loan to keep it going. And it hit at 69 feet. I don't know much about oil, but I'm guessing 69 feet is really, really shallow to strike oil. When a lot of wells today, you have to go hundreds or thousands of feet down. Um, yeah, sixty-nine feet is so shallow to strike water. So, yeah, yeah, especially in California. So he he not drilled in that spot, you know, and he'd gone a few hundred feet. The guy, one of the tour guides or people at the museum, where he said he'd gone a thousand feet this way. The nearest oil to the surface is like two hundred feet down, farther than where he hit. So because he hit where he did, like had he been in another spot, he probably wouldn't hit oil and not that they never would have found oil in the future, but this whole oil revolution would have taken longer to come. Like it's because of where he dug specifically so, that it made it work. So obviously it's an inexact science, but where does one find the oil? Is there any indication on the surface that indicates, Hey, there may be oil under under here. Well, I think back then, like Jake talked about, they would just see it. They would see it seeping out to the surface. Okay. And then over the yeah. years, they, they, they developed seismic technology where they can, you know, see down into the earth and they, they read the logs. I've seen these logs and it's gibberish to me. But yeah, they've yeah. And, and even still, I can't tell you how many times I've been on a, a drill site where they're standing there and they've drilled 4,000 feet into the earth and they're expecting to hit oil at, you know, 3,200. And the geologist is just like, I don't know what happened, man. It was, this, this is the spot. Sorry. Yeah. And they wrap it all up and yeah. now they're, they're a half million dollars out of pocket with nothing to show. Yeah. It's, and you know, I read absent superpower where he, where Peter Zion talks a lot about the fracking revolution. It's kind of this whole new revolution. Um, technology and and not just oil but natural gas and like in pennsylvania in new york they have the marcellus shale marcellus shale yeah north dakota they have the bakken reserve i don't know if there's another huge one in texas and another one in california and they're able to you know dig one vertical hole but then they've got all these webs spreading out across all these shale layers 
and they're fracturing and they're getting all this natural gas, but then they're getting really, really light, sweet crude as well as a, almost as a byproduct. So it's just like, it's happening all over again. Like the shale revolution again is changing the entire world. Um, where people they thought previously, well, there's no more oil here, and now they're finding tons and tons of oil and natural gas again. Um, it's pretty awesome. So, but yeah, that's it, man. I just want to talk about oil industry because it was it was wild going there. Interesting. Yeah, it's a big deal. I I believe America is currently a uh, a net exporter of oil and gas. So yeah. Yeah, we uh, we started doing it, what, in 2014 when the shale revolution took off. Everything was great until 2020, COVID hit. But I guess we've climbed back up again and we're exporting more than we import, which is good for our economy. Um, There's quite a bit of oil coming out of Central Asia as well. Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Iran still has... I bet China and, 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 that. and yeah, China is very invested in building the infrastructure to get get to the not just the oil but those resources. Mm-hmm. Um, so like Afghanistan has got huge like lithium deposits, and mm-hmm. yeah, Central Asia's got tons of stuff that we need in a 21st century world, and they're finally getting back into the game after kind of being iced out the last hundred years or so. That reminds me, you know, uh, I saw a clip of Elon Musk talking to investors at Tesla, and one of them tried to kind of do a gotcha with him. And they're like, you know, what are you doing about the cobalt mining for your batteries? And he said, well, that's interesting. He says, listen, uh, we'll have third parties do investigations. We'll put a webcam there so we can watch as they mine. Uh, we can do that. That's fine. He says, here's the thing, though. Our batteries are almost, they're like 99% iron and 99% nickel. Like, that's what our batteries are. He says, we use very little cobalt, very little lithium. He says, your phone, however, that you're holding is a 100% cobalt battery. Huh. And, uh... It was just interesting. Somebody's trying to kind of pin that on him. Um, yeah, he's the. I, I got my issues with the Elon Musk, but he's not the sure. reason that there's giant open pit cobalt no, mines. That's not. But of course, every company that uses those separates themselves a couple layers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I I get it. It's interesting because even battery technology is like they're moving away from the lithium batteries one because they're super expensive and relatively inefficient and now they've like solid state batteries and like sodium ion batteries and i mean the the technology is changing so fast that it's yeah, be... we're so skittish on nuclear but yeah so all right well i got one last thing i want to go over uh some dad news um so let's wrap up our oil talk and uh get into some tad front news i don't know if you guys saw this story i think it happened last week um, so this this guy, Nathan Montanese, um, his family, his wife and kids were going to fly to Disney World in Florida, and they lived in New Jersey. So he drops his family off at the airport, and he's got to drive back home because he's got to work, and he couldn't take the time off for work. So he drops his family off at the airport. His wife calls him like 20 minutes later and says, hey, the flight's canceled. We can't go. The next earliest flight's like in a day, and we can't make that happen. So he's like, okay, I'll come back, pick you up. He picks him up and he plays on his radio and he just picks him up and they think they're going back home. And he's just plays, starts playing, uh, I think Willie Nelson's on the road again. And he just starts driving to Florida from New Jersey. He drives 17 hours, drops his family off at Disney, turns around and drives back home. Uh, and he only missed one day of work doing it. His family didn't miss any days at Disney. He got them there in time. So they're, his wife and kids were able to, spend the whole trip there and then fly back on their return flight. But that guy's got to be, he's got to be in the, in the finalists for dad of the year. That's a pretty, pretty so I have a few questions. Okay. Flight gets canceled. There's, there's no other flights. 
There's no like your flight's canceled. We'll put you on this next one. The article said the next earliest flight was the next day. That's what it said in the article. What what time was their original flight? I don't I don't know. I don't have. I, I'm just thinking like 17 hours. <laughs> Eric wants a receipt. If their flight was it, I. This is the son of a pilot. That's how you know he's got all these like poking holes in the story. Yeah, he's instantly coming to the defense of the, uh, yeah. the aviation industry. Who gets on the airlines? I just the pilots are heroes. I I get it. This is a Maybe cool move. He, have super majors too. He yeah. did a great thing, but seventeen hours is a heck of a long time to drive. I assume they're with kids. Yeah, so that that's going to take longer. Did they actually? Are you save just trying time? to like justify why you wouldn't have to do that? Like, are you trying to rationalize? No, I'm just I'm wondering, like a 17 hour drive yeah. for Disney World. Yeah. yeah, is it worth it? Rather than wait for the flight the next day, that's my only question. Are Disney, are Disney World tickets refundable? Because if not, I would drive I mean, for seventeen hours. But are they mm-hmm. going to lose a day at Disney World? They didn't. He got. If they're losing a day, it might make sense. But they didn't well, miss any days. Wait twenty four hours for your next flight. Seventeen. Yeah. Well, he made the trip in seventeen well, hours, Eric but if he had hot. to wait twenty four. Hours for his next flight, then it makes sense. And I bet you, maybe, maybe a family of four. So it's his wife and his two children. So three. You're talking about plane tickets, airfare, that kind of thing. It was probably a break-even thing financially. So yeah. he saved seven hours. Probably was about the same a wash financially, and you get a chance to tell a story like that. That's awesome. Yeah. Like, like how badly did he want that? his wife and kids out of the house? <laughs> he was willing to drive thirty-four hours <laughs> in total. He didn't care about yeah. missing work. Yeah, like, he wasn't willing to miss work to go to Disney World, but he'll miss a day to get them. He was, like, was going to play Red Dead Redemption on a loop, just <laughs> to Florida. Yeah, Eric, <laughs> to Florida. Eric, how how far was that trip when we drove back from Jake's wedding? When we drove straight from Wisconsin. 28 hours. 28 How many hours, hours did you drive? About one. In New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Josh took about 20 of it. I took about eight of it. Eric was, uh, it, yeah, I'm going to take it around the block here. It snowed in every state but Kansas <laughs> on that trip. Yep. That was a ridiculous trip. It was fun. That was so much fun. That uh, Eric's great uh, for road trip. If you want enlightening conversation, that's what I'm there for. Directions from a guy with an atlas. But if you need him to drive, you're, you're SOL. Nope. nope. Yeah. <laughs> and the great thing about yeah. Eric on a road trip is he can take a nap at any moment. He will just pass out. <laughs> well, every time we drive back to Arizona, I, I drive both legs, the whole thing. Yeah. Stepped it up. I still fall asleep from time to time. <laughs> what was well, this? What was the place we went to? Uh, steak and Shake, Shaken Steak What's and it? Shake. Oh steak man! And shake. The fact that we ate there and did and lived to tell the tale is amazing. After after the waitress and the cook got into a verbal altercation, so we still got our food. Steak and Shake food. We should have immediately left. Steak and Shake and Waffle House are cousins in the in the yeah. fast casual dining world. They are not that different from each other. Was that in, in in Kansas City, Missouri? I where, think so. Where were we? I think we were in Kansas City. Okay, probably after two in the morning. It was. It was still dark. Because we left yeah. Madison about 6 or 7 p.m. Yeah, it was about dinner time. Yeah. It was probably 3 a.m. At, uh, in and Kansas I City. driving through Iowa. Said about like, right. We made a mistake here. Like, we need to get a hotel or something. <laughs> when we were in Iowa, I was like, this is rough. And then I started driving, I think, after Shake and, Steak and Shake. And I drove from Missouri 
to Oklahoma. That's a rough and then stretch. Josh took over again. Yeah, it was it was brutal. Kansas sucks. Yeah. Kansas is the worst state in the union. <laughs> I have learned. Agreed. All right. Well, that's all I got for tonight. Um, so I guess we'll sign off here. We did in a tight, tight hour here. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. Record. Well, I'm going to trim off about ten minutes. Why? Eric, <laughs> what was wrong with the first the beginning? Was the best part. Send it. Send that yeah, email. Teaser. Go. Yeah, just hit publish. Oh, no notes. <laughs> no it's notes. Fine. I don't. I can't remember anything that needed to be pulled out. <laughs> Nothing. Very Nothing. It'll be good. You're an intellectual conversation. I'll make that the uh, the thumbnail. Yeah. Do we have a dad bod history only fan? Maybe that's what we need to start doing. Just get oh. real. <laughs> yeah, maybe start making some money off this thing. There we go. Yeah. Maybe this is what pushes us over the edge. I will say this. My wife has pushed me to start selling feet picks. So I might. I'm getting closer to making that decision. You do yeah. have a nice set of feet. Thank you. I try I my just, best. Just you know? wear like I got a, nice straight lines. A freaking luchador mask and show those feet off, baby. There you go. There we go. You'll get a little, little bit work. of sun at the pool in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. here. You know, I, I think it's a good time. Yeah, yeah you just so, change your name to Rim Peterman. and just, just, I'm not against it. <laughs> I, I can't <laughs> think of any downsides. Yeah, <laughs> There's literally no downside to this. It's going to be a good Christmas at the Ryan's household. No. Oh yeah. So just saying, if we need if Eric, if you need us to do it, I'm I'm willing to. It's it more uncomfortable the more we talk about this. So let's uh like two short videos a day is is not uh cutting it apparently. So you know, look at that. Look at that. It's a little dirty today. It's a good foot. It's a good foot. Yeah. This little piggy went to the market, Eric. All right. Well, thank you for piggy. checking out this top-notch episode of dad about history i'm jay we got eric cameron and jeff and we'll see y'all next time have a great day in history bye-bye